You are listening to the Enormo Cast. You know, it'd be great if we could all climb free and naked as wee little spider monkeys, leaping and bounding up rocks with nothing but our birthday suits and belief. But we can't, can we? At least not in mixed company. So when it's time to gear up and protect your sensitive bits on the next adventure, please consider that Black Diamond Equipment has been supporting the Enormacast for six years, nearly from its inception. BD had faith in the project as soon as they got wind of its enormous stature, and they've been helping melt the cheese on the delicious ear burger that is the Enormacast ever since. So please consider that next time you open your wallet for a spanky new piece of gear. Black Diamond, proud sponsor of the Enormacast. La Sportiva presents Storytime. There once was a little boy named Tommy Caldwell. One day, little Tommy decided he wanted to climb a really big wall, but he couldn't find any shoes to climb the big wall in. So he decided to build his own out of scotch tape, fluffernutter, and a used pair of hand jammies left behind by a couple of euros in Camp 4. When those didn't work, Tommy called the adults at Sportiva and asked them for help. Sportiva came up with the TC Pro, named after little Tommy himself. A shoe so good at big wall climbing that little TC grew up to climb the hardest, biggest big walls in the world in his TC Pros. Then he talked his best friend, teeny tiny Alex H, into trying them, and Alex, well, he became a pretty good climber too. So if you want to be like TC or Tiny A, go to Sportiva.com or your favorite mountain shop and check out a pair of TC Pros. And maybe someday you'll grow up too. The end. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it. Oh, I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is January 24th, 2018. About 9 o'clock in the evening here in Colorado. And this is episode 144 of the Enormacast, a conversation with ice climber, mixed climber, alpinist, Raphael Slowinski. A lot of you guys probably have never heard of Raphael Slowinski. He kind of likes it that way. But yeah, Raph, as his friends call him, coming out of Calgary, one of the preeminent ice climbers of the last 20, 25 years up there as well as a big mountain climber, climbing in Pakistan, climbing in the Canadian Rockies. And though his name is not necessarily household, he's one of those guys that ice climbers and alpinists know and revere. It was pretty cool. I was down at the Ice Fest, as usual, not climbing ice. Didn't even climb a pitch of ice this year. Um, We had trouble getting gear. 
because we were kind of late to the party one day. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another and we were back in the hot tub. But we did enjoy ourselves down there and ran into Colin Powick, who was good friends with Rafael Slowinski. And I saw that he was on the program and I said to Colin, you have to get me Rafael Slowinski. And boom, pow, a few hours later, we were sitting down. Literally happened as quickly as that, which was really cool because Raf lives up in Calgary and that's a long ways away from Carbondale. So as you know, I stalked these people trying to get them in front of me and it just worked out really well. Very interesting guy, a physics professor, but he spends every other waking hour that he's not hanging out with his wife and his hairless cats, he's in the mountains climbing. Anyway, very cool interview from a thoughtful guy. And we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, The only news I have is actually that um, I'm going to be at the American Alpine Club event in February in Boston. Yeah, I'm going all the way to Boston for that. The uh, American Alpine Club very generously invited me to come out there, get some interviews, and we'll be doing those on site with some uh, some of the greats that are going to be there. But I'm also going to do a little Northeast tour. Yeah, I'm finally not going to ignore the Northeast completely. I'm going to go up there, going to ferret out some interviews. It's kind of its own scene up there. You know, it's like people are... Some people are kind of trapped in amber, I feel like, up there. We don't know what goes on up in the Northeast, out here in the West. Just cold mountains and old school rock climbing, I guess. If you have suggestions or can put me in touch with somebody uh, you want to hear on the show, yeah, feel free to email me at chris at anormacast.com. And as soon as I'm done with all the hate mail from last episode, I will get to it. I will get back to you as soon as I can. Hell hath no fury, like a daisy chain wearer scorned. Anyway, that's the uh, American Alpine Club Benefit Dinner. I'll be up there. If you're going, love to chat with you. If you're not going and want to go, you can go check it out at AmericanAlpineClub.org on the Benefit Dinner link. Yes, the Enormacast in a tuxedo. Okay, let's get to this one. Raphael Slowinski. Well, let's go ahead and just jump in and see where see what happens. Yeah. My kind of first question for you, and well, actually, my very first question for you is, is whether or not I'm still a legend in Canmore at mm-hmm. all. Is that is that still happening at all? Is there any talk of me up there anymore? Well, for one thing, I don't live in Canmore. I live right. in Calgary. So it doesn't may not seem like much of a difference, but mm-hmm. it means I'm not in the scene. How about Calgary? Does anyone in Calouse still come up? I mean, your name's in the guidebook. <laughs> your name's in the guidebook and all those cool multi-pitch routes and the ghost. So I think your name is there for posterity. Okay, good. All right. Well, at least that's happening. I just wanted to make sure yeah, yeah, see, yeah. see what was going on. Yeah. You're um, gone, but not forgotten. Okay. That's, I appreciate that. That's um, important to me to uh, still have a legacy up there. Oh, yeah. And, well, the legacy is the rock in Devil's Gap. Right. Cool. Yeah. Um, Still wondering why that place just hasn't blown up even more with rock climbing. It's there's so much left. Yeah, there's so much left. I mean, there's so much left in the range, yeah. and I mean, sometimes people go to the easy to get to places. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mean, for example, let let's take single pitch. Let's take Asafel. I mean, people are squeezing in yet another variation at Asafel mm-hmm. when there's all of Echo Canyon, and right. then people are squeezing another variation like Echo Canyon when there's Right, other stuff. So, right, so um, yeah, 
we won't run a rock anytime soon. Yeah, for sure. Um, talking about your history, the about when was the dawn of your climbing in the Canadian Rockies? So I had a pretty slow start to climbing. Mm-hmm. I kind of started meandering around the mountains and um, doing a bit of glacier travel and stuff like that in the um, late 80s and then got into some easy mountaineering in the early 90s. But it really didn't grab me at first. And strangely, strangely enough, it was actually going away to grad school in Chicago, of all places, in the middle of the Midwest. Thousands of kilometers of cornfields between me and the nearest mountains. Um, it was living there that uh, that kind of... Um, got me psyched on climbing because all of a sudden I realized that I miss the mountains. I think un- un- until you, you're you deprived of something, you don't know how much it means to you. Right. To, how, what years were you there? I was there 89 to 94. Okay. Cool. So how did then, uh, um, let's go there. Like you're yeah. in, where are you going? University of Chicago? What's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you are well into downtown Chicago at that point. I mean, South Side a little bit. South Side, exactly. Yeah. So... Wow, is it that suddenly you find climbing there in the in 89 and 94, which coincidentally, I graduated high school in Libertyville, Illinois, mm-hmm. north suburb of there, <laughs> in 1989. And I left for Colorado uh-huh. uh, in 1989. So here you are, you know, what, how, how is it you find climbing in, in a place like that, in that situation? Then? Well, like I said, I'd, I'd been doing some modern mountaineering back in the Rockies, back home. And then all of a sudden I find myself in Chicago and I realized, holy shit, I was actually really into this stuff. And so I started looking for the nearest thing and obviously no mountains. So I find places like Devil's Lake and my first five, six top rope was at Devil's Lake. And I find places like Starved Rock, this little state park two hours west of Chicago. And my first leads and my first top ropes my first leads um sort of grade three four happened at starved rock so yeah i was just looking for something that was had some verticality right now my chicago <laughs> listeners are like cheering that that <laughs> rafael swinsky started ice climbing at starved rock they're super stoked right now i can guarantee it i think i got lucky too that um for a couple of winters there i was actually cold enough that some ice formed i understand that it's especially these days it doesn't come in every year. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I was, I was definitely fortunate. I uh, just saw pictures two days ago, I think, on one of the, the feeds that there's ice in cool. Star Rock I'm, right I'm, now. I'm psyched Because for it. it's been like ungodly cold there. Cool. You know, in the I'm, last uh, few I'm months. psyched for all the Chicago climbers. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Did you venture up, I mean, finding stuff in Michigan, all those sorts of places So as just well? towards the end of my stay in Chicago, I drove up, made a little road trip to the Upper Peninsula, and I still remember walking over the ice to Grand Island off of um, off of the coast there. Under uh, after driving for whatever eight hours from Chicago, so we get there, it's already dark. So we walk under the uh, northern lights onto the island, and for a few days we just camped and climbed there. And uh, um, and so actually. Ever since, I've been going back to the Michigan Ice Fest. Oh, right on. And so actually, this winter, I'm going there again for my third or fourth time. And it, the, I feel a special connection with the place. And kind of my, uh, even those in home, those, those are my early stomping grounds. Mm-hmm. For sure. And who did you find to climb with? Well, so there are actually quite a few, well, quite a few people. There are a few people, um, fellow graduate students, mm-hmm. who are also hungry for 
anything vertical. And so actually with a few of them, we developed some bouldering on the south side, this retaining wall of... Um, of a harbor on the south side. Uh-huh. And we actually, one of, uh, one of the guys, uh, Jeff Elam, put together a little guidebook uh, to the place. And uh, oh, yeah, it was a funny place. There'd be people hanging out at the top of this wall, just drinking beer. So occasionally these bottles would fly over the wall. So the first thing you, when we got there, you'd have to sort of clear the broken glass. Mm-hmm. And then you pop over the top of the wall and someone looks at you and is like, you could have walked around the backside. <laughs> right, of course, yeah. And, and it, it, these are made out of rock? Or are you guys gluing rocks to them? Uh, or are no, you like so, so this cracks was, or what? Um, so this was sort of the stone wall with uh, mortar in between the stones. Okay. And so to warm up, we do traverses just kind of on the edges of the stones. And then for all the hard problems, we're crimping um, just the features on the stone. So I'm not sure. I bet there's some problems that we'll be able to do now. Right. Because... I don't like crimping that much. I, <laughs> I, I prefer other kinds of cli- kinds of climbing. So I bet there was some there was some stuff that was actually kind of hard. Right, right, cool. So then you you go back to Canmore uh, or to Calgary? Yeah, or to Cal- Sorry, yeah. I keep saying Canmore. Uh, you go back to Calgary and tell me about what your vision now is when you're looking around the mountains. You, you well, obviously changed quite a bit in four yeah. years what you were interested in doing, hiking versus climbing versus whatever. Yeah, so when I got back, it was like I could not get enough of the mountains, um, much to my wife's chagrin. Um, I think I really tried her patience those first few years back because um, after, again, being deprived of the mountains, I just spent basically every free moment running around and doing roots on yam and um, and ice climbing. And of course, yeah, my first season ice climbing, basically I, had, I hadn't done anything in the range. And so at that point, I was sort of leading sort of grade four, just breaking into grade five. And so all these routes that I had read about and dreamed about, and now I could actually go up and do them. So... Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was a very exciting time. It was a kind of a scary time too, because uh, as I'm sure you know, there's uh, um, inexperience and keenness are a dangerous combination. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, every six months or so, at a, at a fairly regular intervals, I would have these close calls. Which uh, and sometimes close calls are just a matter of bad luck, but uh, there was a lot of bad judgment involved here. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so for example, um, there was one. Um, so this was um, when I was also getting into some alpine climbing and some alpine mixed climbing. There's this uh, fairly small route in the Columbia ice fields called Shooting Gallery in Mount Andromeda. And uh, I went up to do that. And um, it was a really warm September day. And uh, the crux is this little strip of ice. And I started up at the belay was 10 or 20 meters below and um, off from some pitons off on the sidewall. And, and I'm just basically hooking rock under slush. The, the, there's just, it, it's not even ice. It's above freezing. And, and if I had any brains, I would have just backed off. But it wasn't even uh, boldness. It was just sheer stupidity. It just didn't occur to me back, to back off. Mm-hmm. I just kept climbing and climbing and not getting any gear in and until finally the my tools shoot through the slush and I fell off and I took this giant factor to fall onto the belay, um, trying to self-arrest um, inadvertently with my teeth. I actually lost a couple of teeth in the process. Um, 
Yeah, so stupid shit like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Just like, yeah, not not even making a mistake per se, but just not clueless. knowing. Yeah, just, clueless. Right, yeah, right. just not knowing any better. Like how, I, how old were you at this point? I was old enough that I should have known better. <laughs> old enough to know. I was, better. I was um, so so. I was kind of um, just curious. Like I was kind of a late, when it got into your well, life. I was kind yeah. of a kind of a late bloomer. I, mm -hmm. I really didn't get seriously into climbing until sort of my early or even mid twenties. Okay. And so by then we're talking late twenties. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not some um, you know apologies to all the all the kids out there, but I, I'm I'm not some seventeen year old. I should have right. known better. <laughs> You're just too amped up. Exactly. Okay. There's an arc here because I think that uh, having been someone who started ice climbing actually raid right in that same zone because when I moved to Colorado um, in 1989, that's when I started climbing and got right into ice climbing as well. And it obviously looks really different than what it looks like today. And I didn't make it. My sort of interest in it waned a little bit, a little bit before there was, there seems to have been like in the late 90s, another revolution in the gear um, in terms of cur curve tools, even, you know, more swooped picks, boots and gear and everything else getting much lighter. And it was much less of this, like, just straight in bashing. And it, it occurs to me that your career since then is like passed through that entire arc of what was i think kind of a revel another revolution in mm -hmm. in ice climbing since the one that like chenard started with with the reverse curve picks and and climbing steep ice mm -hmm. um so let's talk a little bit about that like the differences between these moments when you started mm -hmm. in those years in the mid 90s you know crossing the threshold of this crazy mixed climbing what were some of the kind of benchmarks for you as you yeah. moved through that history yeah so it's interesting you mentioned that we we probably started ice climbing at the same time, and and you went more the rock climbing way, whereas um, yeah, certainly more more and more actually each passing year I love rock climbing, but uh, but also obviously I got in a big way into ice and mixed and alpine, and I think partly it was because I um, I found that I had a certain facility for it, and I, and I think we we liked things we're good at, and I found that I got good at ice climbing relatively speaking a lot quicker than um than at rock climbing and so uh and so i think that drove me forward and i and yeah like you said it was a really cool time to be in ice climbing because ice climbing was changing pretty fast i i think i was lucky that i got in at the, at the very very tail end of the um straight shaft at stubai and um foot fangs and well, although yeah. I, I wore my first crampons, were, well, not my first crampons, but my mainstay for quite a number of years, actually, were foot fangs. So I definitely... You um, caught that end of that. I yeah. caught that yeah. end of that. But but already I used halfway decent screws as opposed to... Uh, I mean, yeah, I caught the very tail end of the snark era. The snark, yeah, I had all rack snarks. I might have given up on <laughs> ice climbing if, I, if I'd been, yeah, if I'd been in your position. Um, I mean, gear is important, but I would also not overestimate the importance of mm -hmm. gear because, I mean, yes, ice climbing has changed and we, especially, yeah, with lighter gear and way more efficient ice crews, that makes a huge difference. And warmer boots and uh, and better clothing, we can move way faster and f be more free on ice. But uh, But in the end... Some of the stuff that people were doing back then was really high end also so yeah i don't i don't want to well again gear is important mm -hmm. but but I think 
people's attitudes and people's psyche in the end matter just as much, if not more. Yeah, so let's talk about that then, like, um, because you're right, the, the gear becomes sort of a foundation, but then there still has to be this vision on top of it to decide that, you know, again, in those that era, 89, 94, like a mixed climb, because I climbed all mixed up in the park, you know, some of these Duncan Ferguson routes in mm-hmm. Rock National Park and stuff. And he was sort of a cutting edge sort of mixed climber. But mm-hmm. it meant that you were like on ice mostly and you, you know, you move every once in a while you're scraping at something with mm-hmm. your on the rock with your with your tool for a minute or whatever. But what happened after that and what happened in your era and, and was happening, I think, really strongly where you guys were was this idea of, OK, you know, these mixed climbs can be mostly rock. We're in an era now where they're, they're all rock even. Sure. But talk about maybe the movement towards that because you were a big part of that. Uh, yeah. So, in, in well, terms of- I think it, it started in the early 90s with people wanting to get onto piece of ice that never seemed to form to the ground. Sure. So things like um, Suffer Machine and, and so on where um, there would – and there the emphasis was on just – getting to the ice any which way and then it was all about the ice climbing the uh, the rock was just a means to an end and then somehow the rock became maybe not an end in itself at least not initially but it became important also how you climb the rock mm-hmm. so i mean dry tooling to some extent is glorified aid climbing you're obviously um not grabbing the rock directly you have Basically, you're sort of holding ice hooks in your in your ha- or or uh, sky hooks in your hands, but still, it's especially when it gets steep, it gets pretty damn physical, and so it became important that um, to do those things free in the sense in which we understand free climbing, mixed climbing, mm-hmm. and so by the late '90s, especially, a lot of these big bolted mixed routes were going up, like the real big drip and um, and Rocket Man, and I had some hand in um, especially in Rocket Man, where well, yeah, it was the it was just as much about the ice, I think, as it was about the these cool athletic pitches between the uh, between the the ice. Mm-hmm. And then I guess as happens quite often when uh, when a new sport develops, it begins to specialize and becomes a thing in its own right, becomes sort of art for art's sake, mm-hmm. and so. This mix climbing, this dry tooling started coming down to these overhanging cliffs and caves. And there the ice might have just been this little two meter goatee at the end of it, <laughs> just this mere excuse. And really it became all about the, uh, the intensely technical and physical moves from the deck to get to the ice. And basically you were done when you got to the ice. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, culminated with um, roots that Will, that, uh, Will Gad put up, like Musashi, where um, where it was all about the the big roofs getting to the ice. And basically, once you got to the ice, you were done. Mm-hmm. And, and during that year, how drawn were you to that versus being drawn to things in the mountains, big roots, big faces. So what, I, where was your energies yeah. going in, in that kind of era? I kept going into the mountains. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for example, in 99, 
did the ACE train for the first time, and uh, I think 2001, climbing the north face of Geeky. So, so I was still into mountain routes, mm-hmm. but I would maybe do one or two mountain, big mountain, bigger mountain routes a year. And really, my energy was largely focused, especially in the winter months. I was never perverse enough to dry tool in the summer. That's just wrong. Uh, sorry, to the, sorry to the dry toolers out there, but there's better things to do in the summer. Right. Um, but, but yeah, for a number of years there, my energy in the winter was definitely focused on, on the, on the um, well, initially figure fours and, uh, and then the uh, heel spurs and whatnot. Um, and it was kind of fun, too, that, again, for a while there with some friends like Ben Firth, we felt like we were on the cutting edge of our sport. And it helps to choose a really small uh, obscure sport. It helps you helps to be you on be the, the cutting, cutting edge. edge. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we were doing things at um, places like the Gulag, this um, obscure cold cave on uh, on the way up to the to the Terminator, where I think at the time one of the routes we did there, Animal Farm, was one of the hardest things in North America. And, and you know, it was obviously we all have egos and um and it was kind of fun to think that yeah we're doing something that uh that was harder than anyone on this continent has done mm-hmm. maybe uh, so so yeah for a number of years my focus was definitely on that kind of climbing and uh and again was what was, was also exciting around the time was that for one we're pushing grades all of a sudden we're like going from m8 to m9 to m10 to m11 in really quick succession mm-hmm. And also the gear, too, that um, in, I think in 99, I was still doing those routes, doing figure fours, uh, hanging on leashes and big boots, big crampons. And two years later or so, uh, it was about the heel spurs. And then became clear that with heel spurs, you could climb anything because once you learn to use them, you could hang out anywhere. So... um, Basically, a sport kind of lost its point. It, when something becomes too easy, it's just not interesting anymore. And so we took away the heel spurs, and uh, and so and so the sport became interesting again. And um, I mean, just like these days, people are taking away the figure fours to uh, make it a little less mechanical, a bit more like rock climbing. Mm-hmm. So um, so it was it was really fun to be part of the scene and um, and to kind of uh, play a bit of a role in that in that whole advance um, as the. This little niche sport of dry tooling was um, was really coming of age and uh, getting revolutionized. So I I don't want to get too in the weeds here because um, I want to get into your personal uh, you know climbing a, a lot more. But I wanted to ask actually really quick because the heel spur thing is as a non ice climber and and someone who doesn't mix climb and and maybe people have no idea that there was this like moment where those were sort of out of fashion or, or removed. Yeah. And now you're saying that the figure four is sort of being sort of looked down upon as like something. Well, <laughs> but I, all I'm asking is yeah. like, how does that, uh, I mean, how, can you talk about how that sort of coalesces in the sport to where I guess everybody sort of gets on board with this idea that oh, the, stylistically, like mm-hmm. those are out, this is out. Is it just a, kind of a meme setup where it percolates and everybody I finally so. agrees? I think or, so. It's, yeah. And and the comparison I would use is, um, I mean, think of places like the Millennium Cave in Maple that uh, that maybe someone who's really really good at knee barring can sort of a rifle can kind of knee bar their way up a route um, without getting pumped. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it kind of at least for 
for someone who is that skilled at that technique, it doesn't it's, it loses its interest. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do? Well, you take away the knee pads and you take away the knee bars and all of a sudden you get, you get pumped again. Right. And so basically it was like that. You, you take away the heel spurs and you get pumped again. And it was, um, and it, for me, it actually was crystallized on one particular day. So on, and I forget, it was like 2002, 2003. And on that day, I was climbing in the Cineplex cave, this big cave on the Icefields Parkway. And I beta flashed um, a route, I forget if it's M11 or M12. And I'm not that good a climber to, to be flashing stuff like that. But basically, I just kind of heel spurred my way up it. I would kind of hang on a heel spur while the uh, first ascensionist would feed me beta and that would make a few more moves, hang on a heel spur, listen to more beta. And later in the day, I got on Musashi, which I had done before. And halfway up the route, I dropped a tool. And so instead of taking, I just hung on a heel spur, um, lowered a loop of rope and pulled the tool back up and continued. Okay. And that really crystallized to me that this is getting silly. So you're literally like hanging upside down. You're hanging upside down, but if you have tight fruit boots, right. these uh, boots with bolted on crampons, and if they're tight enough so they don't you're peel off your... Off of them, you, they right? don't, exactly. You can fully relax. Right. You're just hanging off of, you just, off of bone and exactly. You're not yeah. Exactly. You're yeah. hanging off of bone. You're not hanging off a of muscle. Mm-hmm. You can be there forever. Okay. Um, you know, until your belayer gets bored. And didn't Ben pull some stunt where he threw a, a chair up in the middle of a route? That's like, right. To prove a point about, like, chilling out in the middle of a route? That's right. Yeah. And so... And so, and so then it kind of led to this whole, uh, I think Will, uh, Will Gadd calls it bareback climbing, where um, so you're not allowed heel spurs and neither are you allowed, say, to hook a leg over a tool. Because again, if you had a good enough tool placement, you could hook a leg over that. And again, it it's kind of like a perfect knee bar. Mm-hmm. You can rest almost forever. All right. So yeah, so you're just... I mean, it's just sort of style is what you guys it's, are talking about. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's style. It's I mean, ultimately, we those the, those sports we do are interesting mm-hmm. if there's kind of just the right balance between possibility and challenge. Sure. If something's impossible, then it's not interesting. But if there's no challenge, it's not interesting either. It, right. it has to be kind of just at the limit of possibility, and then it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And you guys feel like, or do you feel personally that... It worked itself out to to that balance kind of in its current form. You know, these days I don't do that much dry tooling. I mean, I still go out and dry tool. I have my own crag that I've been developing Mm -hmm. that I use as a a kind of as a personal gym uh, just to kind of keep a certain level of fitness. But I certainly don't. um, It's been quite a number of years since I pushed the grades. So I'm out of touch with what's going on right. at the cutting edge. I do know that what's going on partly at the cutting edge is business of, um, um, so does the French, especially, and um, um, Jeff, Mer- Jeff Mercier is a big proponent of climbing without figure fours. And I, I can kind of see his point because, um, again, figure fours are a very mechanical form of climbing. You're basically repeating the same move for 30 or 40 meters. It's not terribly interesting for the climber. It's even less interesting for someone watching it. Whereas if you disallow a figure four, just, you know, again, a silly game we play. Sure. But all of a sudden you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to do this without figure fours. Well, all of a sudden now you have to keep some core tension and find little divots for your feet and 
again, it becomes a bit like like more bit more like rock climbing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So about kind of back to your personal. You're going back to this like chronological part of this thing. You you got back to to Calgary, went through a good period of death defying naivete, if you will, yeah, in the no, mountains. That's a good way of describing it. And then it. you know, and then found yourself okay, one of the guys in the scene, creating the style, creating the climbs, putting up climbs, all these sorts of things. You said for a couple of years you were driving your wife crazy because every minute needed to be in the mountains, but it doesn't sound like that changed so much. Yeah. So well. what did your life? I mean, what <laughs> your what did your life look like around climbing, so to speak? What else were you up to? I know you're a professor. Um, you're married. Mm -hmm. Describe your obsession with one mm -hmm. thing versus the necessities. Yeah. Of well, the, my my, my wife might might say that uh, that things haven't changed that much <laughs> since those days because. Uh, yeah, I still, uh, you know, so occasionally I whine about just being a weekend warrior and she, she just tells me, give me a break, you're not a weekend warrior. But, right. <laughs> yeah, so, so I still get out a bunch. So, uh, so like you said, I, I am a physics professor at Montreal University in Calgary. And actually, I really like what I do. I, um, it's a smaller undergraduate teaching university, so the focus is primarily on teaching rather than research. And I, I really enjoy that. Um, I, so I don't spend my time writing grants. I spend my time mostly with mm -hmm, students. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I'm not sure if they're always psyched about it, but uh, most of the time, I quite enjoy the process. And the nice thing about academia is that... Um, there are periods when it's go, 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 and then periods when it's slack. And I definitely take advantage of those and get out a lot locally. So again, it helps to live in Calgary on the doorstep of the Canadian Rockies that I can do even some quite big routes and on the Icefield Parkway, either leaving the night before and getting back late the following, the following evening or even just doing big day trips. Mm -hmm. And certainly for rock climbing or just uh, casual days on ice, it's super easy to, to do. Even occasionally, if I have classes in the morning, I'll pack my gear and the days are long enough. I'll just zoom out in the afternoon and uh, get in some pitches on ice or in rock. And, and of course, there are the summers too. And, uh, and so again, somewhat to uh, my wife's chagrin, I um, developed a bit of a passion for expedition climbing, starting... Uh, dozen years ago or so so i've um, made a bunch of trip to alaska and um quite a few trips to asia as well so uh, mostly pakistan mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about the canadian rockies climbing and how you sort of perceive it um obviously you fell in love with it and you know in, in some ways in talking to your friends and i know some folks that climb with you and and i did that was sort of my research was just kind of like <laughs> trying to get some impressions in a lot of ways, I, I get this impression that you found a calling that might have been sort of accidental, but it, I feel like the way you talk about it, the way your friends talk about how you climb, that something in you really feels like it was meant to do this this type of climbing. You know, our friend Colin Powick talks just about how good you are at climbing on choss and on, you know, these big roots in the mountains and and. Not everybody's good at that stuff, and not everybody enjoys it. And mm -hmm. you know, when we talk about choss, that's a negative, sure, it's a negative word. But it, it appears as though that's something <laughs> that you're really drawn to. So, you know, what is it about the Canadian Rockies you think that, and about you uh -huh. that sort of found this nexus together to where you know these things that I would look at and think of as a horror show, 
you look at and you think like, I want to go climb that thing? I think you were right to talk about um, enjoyment and that a lot of people don't enjoy that. And certainly on a big climb, there's typically, you know, there are, there are some moments when you're not enjoying yourself and and you wish that you were done and back down on the trail <laughs> and ideally back home in bed. Uh, so actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I did a bigger climb along the Isles Parkway where uh, we're on the go for 23 hours. And I remember kind of being somewhere up there on the summit ridge uh, sometime after midnight, kind of thinking, I could be home in bed. And why am I, why am I doing this? Um, but there is... Yeah, you're like, smiling right now yeah, talking about it. So. Um, <laughs> like, 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 like you said, there's... Um, I think ultimately there has to be enjoyment there. Mm. If there isn't enjoyment on some level, you won't stick with it. Mm. You will try it once or twice, but you won't do it. Whereas, um, again, these days I may spend more time clipping bolts and trying to red point stuff at Echo Canyon than I used to. And maybe uh, I'm a little more choosy about the big chassis routes I do. But at the same time, it's still something that uh, that draws me and that gives me a huge amount of satisfaction and ultimately quite a bit of enjoyment too because it's this uh, i'm not even sure what it is um and i like to say that the moment i or the, the day when i i'll truly need a reason to i'll truly need to articulate a reason for why i do it is that the day i'm done oh right because, so let the enormous ruin um, your climbing career right now <laughs> no like, no no but i I've, i'm gonna uh, make you say it out loud and then you'll you'll be like God, he's right i shouldn't be doing this no this but is i stupid I've, um, <laughs> i sort of have given a number of slideshows of the years and again i sort of ask the same questions like you do those things which um in the moment there there is quite a bit of suffering involved and uh and oftentimes beforehand when i have the butterflies before a big climb it's not even so much that i'm afraid of the climbing I'm just afraid of or, or kind of uh, dreading the huge effort that I know it'll take and that I, by the end of it, I'll be absolutely wrecked. And, and especially when you think about it in advance, you just I don't think you can think too far in advance and you have to kind of enjoy the moment and enjoy the little bits. And, uh, and yeah, at times you're miserable, but then all of a sudden you have these flashes that, that, yeah, here I am stumbling around and biting wind on the summit ridge of Mount Wilson at two o'clock in the morning but i'm with a good friend and we're kind of laughing about it and we still have a long de descent ahead of us but in the end we're doing what we really want to be doing i know this uh, again and uh, being a physicist i i always tell my students be precise this is too sort of a co uh, a fairly common comment on uh, when I'm grading assignments is this is too vague be more precise and and I'm, I'm painfully aware that I'm being very vague and and not precise enough mm -hmm. but uh, but I think in the end it comes down to the fact that there is something about this kind of climbing so this those big alpine routes in the Rockies that um, that I find sort of being on some big north face where you're kind of looking around and you just see all the shattered limestone around you. But at the same time, you're in this huge dark cathedral. There's there's something about that that's, uh, um, yeah, those are just incredible places to be. And I think it, again, like I was saying earlier about ice climbing, that I think it helps that it's the kind of climbing that for some reason I seem to be good at. <laughs> um, and I didn't, don't know what it is. I, I don't consider myself an especially bold climber. For example, I don't I don't go in for soloing very much. 
but yet I seem to be able to um, somehow keep it together on these uh, pictures, so these sort of thinly iced um, pictures of deco decomposing rock. I think there's a lot of people who know you, and even folks who just know of your you know, your resume, as it were, that would find it pretty comical that you just said you don't consider yourself much of a bold climber. I mean, because I just associate those climbs um, having, you know, we I jokingly started this with trying to figure out if I still uh, am appreciated in, in, in the area. But <laughs> and I climbed on a different medium mostly, but I, you know, we, I did Mount Babel and did some of these other things and got a feel like a little taster uh -huh. of those that kind of rock yeah. and that kind of alpine setting. And um, it's a serious business up there. Mm -hmm. I feel like no matter what, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, you know, it's like good rock up there is not like Yosemite granite. And sure. so the bad rock up there is pretty wild. That's right. Yeah. No, so, and, and, and having done the East Face of Babel, you, you know what bad rock can be like. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and especially on that face, you actually, you're having to pull some reasonably hard moves on, 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 uh, on, on not so tower good tower yeah. things and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, th I think a lot of it too is, um, I think what I quite enjoy as well is re retaining control in these environments that are just so big and, uh, and in some ways so uncontrolled. And, and I think it's, I think we fool ourselves if we think we're always in full control. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's how we get hurt. And I, I think sometimes when we always look for reasons for accidents that this or that, someone, someone made this or that mistake. But I think if you go out on these big uncontrolled environments, you are relinquishing some measure of, of control. And so sometimes bad things happen just because, just because you, um, you got unlucky, but I think part of the the big part of my my enjoyment in on those routes is that I am in those big environments, and that I, through technique and uh, mind control and tactics, that I feel like I maintain a semi reasonable margin of safety mm -hmm. and say pounding pitons for a belay and uh and I'm able to get a sort of safe belay in this um on this shattered ledge and uh and I equalize a couple of pins before a dicey section because I know I won't be getting any gear for the next uh, for the next little bit. Um so again kind of it's uh it's it's a it's a really it's a really cool game to play. I, I haven't I for some reason I have absolutely no interest in aid climbing. Mm -hmm. But I imagine that it's maybe a bit of the same with hard aid is that um, you kind of, you play this game that's both physical and mental and technical um, to maintain control in this uh, sort of un environment where um, things could quite easily descend into chaos. Sure. So I had this notion a minute ago when you were talking about how it's difficult to talk about why you're interested in it and there's a vagueness in that. But then one of your criticisms of, of you know, students in your physics classes is that they're not precise enough. You know, is there an idea that you've got these, these sort of yin-yang worlds that, that come together in climbing where you've got this very precise world of physics, of science, and, and you've got this, like, place where you're desperately holding on to control i mean it's, yeah it's, your life is an interesting mix i think um between that professorial life and then casting yourself out into these mountains seems like a, a pretty wild sort of mix mm -hmm. or, or maybe there is like a complete crossover for you and your brain for these two things 
I think one has to be careful drawing parallels because mm-hmm. you can start just making shit up. That, uh, hey, that's just the bread and butter of the normal cast is making shit up. <laughs> this is what we do. All right. So, <laughs> Go for it. Um, I've but, got like 22 hours on this, uh, on this data card here. We could just go. Um, <laughs> but I think especially... Um, I think especially alpinism, I mean, obviously it's a physical game. You need to be fit and skilled. But especially alpinism, I think, is to a very large extent a mental game. And that the best alpinists out there are not necessarily the strongest ones around. Mm -hmm. And I think to that extent, there is the parallel to science, to physics, Mm -hmm. where it is a mental game. And... And maybe I'm a little too cerebral sometimes, but um, but I do think through these things and um, not always fully. I mean, sometimes I'll just look at a pitch and say, yeah, let's go for it. Sure. Um, but uh, but certainly before a big route, I will think about the tactics and when should we get started and uh, what's um, our AVI conditions good enough and um, and should we rappel down the route or should we descend a different way depending on, on, on those conditions. And uh, so... Um, so those, um, so I, so I think I, I am quite cerebral mm-hmm. to some extent about my climbing, but I think there comes a point too, where you, you, you cannot think your way through everything. Mm-hmm. You, you have to, there comes a point where you, where you have to let go of that and just climb. Right. And ideally you've climbed enough that you can draw on these resources, both of instinct and, uh, and fitness and skill and and yeah you just but that go must for be it. that must be for you the breathtaking moments i mean i, I i'm just trying to like yeah. think about you know you you're suffering on these climbs you were just talking about yeah 24 hours most of it actually ends up being suffering but there's a payoff that you keep coming back to and it, could it be that those that's the payoff is when you you reach those moments and i think Actually, I think you might have put your finger on something there, and it's, um, I don't, um, I think w- one thing I'd like to get into more is, um, or uh, or at all, is meditation. Mm. Just to kind of, to, to try to achieve this sort of, uh, or to get better at achieving this kind of, uh, these moments of selflessness, mm-hmm. where you transcend the self, and and you're just, and you just are. Um and again, I certainly don't wish to sound um, spooky or spiritual in any way, because that's very much not me. Uh, but in climbing, especially, I think one of the great appeals of climbing, and, and that can be dangerous uh, alpine climbing, or it can also be, say, a hard red point or uh, or an onsite at your limit, where you just lose yourself in the climbing, that you no longer think about the clip you just skipped. You just, you're just climbing. Mm. And... And I've definitely had those moments as well in the mountains on big routes. And I remember those moments. So, for example, on um, on one of the biggest climbs I've um, done in my life, uh, the northwest face of uh, K6 West, on the, um, on the crux, um, there are these sort of um, little unconsolidated icicles. I remember placing upside down screws and broken off daggers. And I kind of had to decide that... Either I was going to fully commit to the climbing or or I needed to come down. And basically I decided that, okay, I'm just going to commit to it. And 
and I remember kind of it was kind of flashed through my mind, um, pulling through a few of the moves that okay, this is fifty fifty. I'm gonna pull on this dry tool placement, placement, and it could skip skip off, and I could be out of there. But it just kind of the thought just kind of flashed through my mind and it was gone, mm-hmm. and I was just climbing, and obviously don't enter those uh, those sort of um, zones all that often, but they're pretty special when you do. Yeah, who did you climb that with? Uh, my friend Ian Wellstead, that okay. um, who has been my most regular partner in Pakistan. And that you got you guys got uh, recognition PLA for that. Is that we got climb? a yeah. we got a we got the PLA for that. Yeah, so I, I read about that that climb a bit, and and uh, I've always wondered. You know, you've got this like crazy upside down dry tooling world that's basically, you know, fun sport climbing out for the afternoon and and single pitch ice climbing and stuff. And then, you know, every once in a while people take this leap and take some of those those extreme Mm -hmm. techniques that, you know, if you go out at nine in the morning and come home at six at night, it's not that big a deal. But to apply them to these big peaks, I mean, is that what was going on on that face in a sense like you? You were really going for it in the same way that you maybe not quite as yeah. steep, but like yeah. But this is a this is a big mountain. Usually, people kind of take a step back from mm-hmm. those wild extreme things. I mean, were you finding like that kind of climbing up there? I mean, obviously, it wasn't nearly that sure, hard. Sure, but especially given that at that point we're well above six thousand meters, mm-hmm. so the air was getting kind of thin. Mm-hmm. Um, between that and the fact that it was overhanging mixed climbing, it felt pretty damn desperate yeah, and awesome. i don't i mean the whole climb in the whole climb i mean had sections of vertical ice and uh, and thin vertical pitches i don't think we would have gotten up that climb without our long apprenticeship in the rockies sure. and for me especially i don't think i would have gotten up those pitches without having put in the time um, on at the crags, but at the same time, you cannot just stay at the crags because the crags can be kind of self-limiting because you just get too comfortable and reliant. Um, you get too comfortable in the, in the environment and too reliant on um, on safety and and climb always climbing in a safe environment. And so, actually, quite early on, so sort of fairly shortly after that incident I told you about when I kind of lost interest in dry tooling because with the heel spurs I could realize I could kind of heel hook my way up anything. Um, I started taking the um, that game into initially the bigger north faces in the Rockies in winter. Mm-hmm. And so a bit of a breakthrough there was when my friend Ben Firth and I climbed a particular route to the Greenwood Lock on the North Face of Mount Temple in winter and it was something that had been attempted in winter a bunch and people try to rock climb it in gloves and aid climb and always took too long and then the weather would crap out and we went up there and we dry, dry tooled our way up it and it wasn't in retrospect it wasn't that hard but um, again it's not the kind of thing that I think we could have done had we not had that background of cave climbing but also it's not the kind of thing we could have done had we not had the desire to venture outside of the crags and i think that's where maybe not that many people make that leap make the transition from uh, from the crag to um, to sort of the even the world of something like the stanley headwall these four or five petrutes and beyond that places like north face of temple or um, or beyond that places like these big peaks in Pakistan. And I'm not saying that's better or worse. 
it's um i mean it's in the end it's just climbing and it's climbing is an absurd activity it doesn't mm-hmm. make the world a better place we do it for ourselves so so there are no better or worse forms of climbing it's just whatever we enjoy <laughs> did you feel cognizant of this point where um you know, you decide, You said about 10 years ago or something, you, you started to do these expeditions. Were you pretty cognizant of that feeling of like, uh, it's time for me to, to go a little bit further with this stuff, see what altitude's all about? Or was it just an opportunity that, that came on and you, you decided to go and enjoyed it? I think a bit of both. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I didn't want to go on expeditions because I figured that on expeditions, you don't do very much climbing, which is true. <laughs> but um, I'm still not completely sure what uh, changed my mind. Actually, I kind of do. Uh, so the the first time I went uh, to Pakistan was with Steve Swenson, and um, and Steve sent out this email with an attachment showing this peak that looked like it looked like the ground, the north face of the Grand Jaras, but transposed two and a half kilometers higher. Right. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, that actually looks really cool. And so I sort of thought about it and uh, talked about it with my wife and uh, <laughs> then wrote, uh, emailed Steve back. like, sure, okay, I'm interested. And I think there was maybe the, the element of, okay, I've um, done quite a bit of climbing in the Rockies. I've done some harder alpine climbing in the Rockies. Let's see what these bigger mountains are mm-hmm. all about. Let's uh, those peaks look beautiful. They look hard. Let's see what it feels like going there. And uh, and it was a it was a pretty hard apprenticeship between between third world travel and so the whole business of staying healthy. The first few trips that was actually one of the biggest challenges was uh, was actually being healthy uh, for these big peaks. And then acclimatization. So I, for, I realized, for example, that even though by the time I first went to Pakistan, I had already climbed peaks like Logan and Denali, kind of realized that um, with all due respect to North America, that North American mountains don't teach us about altitude. Mm-hmm. That yes, those peaks are tall and it gets a bit hard to breathe up there. But on both Logan and Denali, by the time you're getting up high, you're slogging. You're just walking. Mm-hmm. And chances are, if you're reasonably fit and fast, you don't even have to be spending much time up high. And so I think I thought I knew about altitude, and I really didn't, because it's a totally different game when you actually have to sleep up high and spend day after day up high and climb up high. Mm -hmm. And how was the success on that first one? So on the first one, we actually did not get uh, the permit for the speed. Okay. Actually... Um, it's kind of funny that this summer I'm going back to Pakistan, hoping to go back oh. for that very peak that first drew me to Pakistan. Um, Pakistan has since opened up that area sure. a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like there's a chance to try that that particular peak. And so it's kind of funny that uh, I'm going back to try the thing that first drew me there, that, that it was that photo that first got me excited about going to Pakistan. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, fingers crossed, inshallah, the army doesn't change their mind and, sure. uh, and deny us the permit. But, yeah, that first, so the first trip, we didn't get the permit for that partic- particular peak. We didn't get the permit, actually, for uh, another peak we applied for was K6. We didn't get the permit for that. And so, in the end, we went for trekking peaks, which in Pakistan is anything under 6,500. So, for example, the Trango Tower. 
Triangle Towers and Nameless um, are considered trekking peaks. Oh, that's pretty it's funny. It's kind of funny, but it's yeah, yeah. just the way. <laughs> a rough trek. Yeah. Uh, but basically, yeah, in Pakistan, trekking doesn't mean easy. It right. means under 6,500. Okay. So we went to Charkusa Valley, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous valley. It's this kind of high-altitude Chamonix in the eastern Karakoram with anything from bouldering through one-pitch crack roots or uh, one- or multi-pitch crack roots uh, through rock spires, through super alpine objectives. And so we went there and we played on peaks under 6,500. And even there we failed. Um, mm -hmm. And... To some extent, I think it was, I mean, maybe, um, yeah, we, I think it was misjudgment in a few, on a few occasions, and certainly my misjudgment. I would look at a peak and think, oh, that looks like a really cool line, not realizing that that might be a cool line in the Rockies, but in Pakistan, we just won't be fast enough at that altitude to get through those pitches. Mm -hmm. So we actually didn't get get up much of anything that, right. that trip but um but somehow the the seed was planted right. the and was the hook was set and and i fell in love with the mountains and actually I fell in love kind of with the country too and uh the villagers up in those um mountain villages is, can be pretty rough around the edges but mostly they're incredibly warm and generous people and so it was fun just to spend time with them as well And to see the incredibly hard lives they live and the fact they can kind of keep smiling through it all mm -hmm. was, um, that was quite humbling and, uh, and quite inspiring as well. How many times have you been back? So I've been to Pakistan four times mm -hmm. and I've only made one trip to the Himalaya proper. It was kind of an ill-fated trip. I went to, we wanted to climb a new variation on Everest in Alpine style and uh, we picked the... Um, the year of the earthquake oh, okay and so we uh, we went from the north side so we were in, we had been base camp for two or three weeks acclimatizing when the earthquake struck and and so that's the end of that mm -hmm. have you any desire to do that again i don't think i'm obsessed about everest right. so in fact the everest uh, thing here was a second sort of a very much a second thought originally <laughs> i just wanted to go to eight thousand meters and right. experience what that's like and i didn't have too much interest in doing a normal route. So originally, I wanted to go to something like Shishapangma and climb one of those cool routes on the south face of Shishapangma. And somehow my partners were not interested in that. They really wanted to go to Everest. So I finally said, okay, let's go to Everest. Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually quite scared about the trip because both my partners had been up high before. They had summited Uh, things like uh, Lotse in Makalu, so sort of in an eight and a half thousand meter range, whereas to this day I have only ever been slightly above seven thousand meters. So I was, especially talking to people like Steve Swenson, mm -hmm. who have summited Everest without oxygen, they told me how incredibly hard it is. Just mm -hmm. that basically your body doesn't want to be up there, and it's letting you know in no uncertain terms. Sure, and your physiology can react in very strange and very wrong ways very quickly. And so I was, um, I have to admit, I was, uh, I was quite scared about how my body would react up high. Well, you certainly also, aside from your own personal safety, I mean, as, as somebody who's cl alpine climbing in a small team, mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to let be the guy that like 
you know, becomes the, the liability, you the, know, as yeah. someone who's yourself, who's used to being so capable, mm-hmm. you know, there's probably just got to always be this seed. Like, you know, am I going to be the guy that steps up that high and, and suddenly I'm the, the rescue case, you know? That's right. And, yeah. and, and, and realistically you, the rescue case, but at that altitude, especially if you're just there with your two partners, it may be at the point where, it's all that anyone can do to take care of themselves, sure. much less mm-hmm. take care of a sick partner. And so, and so, yeah, that was uh, that was very much in, in back of my mind. Is that uh, I'm going to a place where, again, we're talking about control and chaos. I'm going to a place where things will be very much beyond my control. Mm-hmm. Um, something like you can acclimatize really well, but something like cerebral edema comes on. Again, it's it just comes on, right, and comes. I've never had it, but I hear it comes on really fast. So, so do you still have a desire to test yourself up there? I think I do. So okay. I think there's uh, somehow we talked about going up high for this trip, and in the end, for a number of reasons, we decided to kind of get more techy, and so play on peaks just under seven thousand, uh, sort of much more technical peaks where uh, where I think there's going to be some pretty hard climbing. But, uh, but I love your, the word you're using to play on these peaks. Um, well, <laughs> I mean, no, it's a great word, and I know it's, it reflects your, your again this joyful, this like I love the mountains kind of thing. But it's just a it's a cool word to hear someone say, "Oh yeah, it's six thousand meters. We'll just go play on it." Well, we we, we refer to our style on these expeditions that uh, you know people talk about. Um, siege style or expedition style or alpine style we refer to our style as base camp style that we maximize the amount of time spent in base camp mm-hmm. they kind of do these sort of quick trips to acclimatize come back to base camp then kind of wait for the weather window mm-hmm. and then try to send whatever big thing we want to send and come back to base camp right so uh so in the end we actually don't spend that much time about base camp okay because base camp is so comfortable right. and uh and rasul the our longtime friend and cook um Make so much such amazing dinners, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to leave. What'd you guys do? Oh, we just hung on base camp. Did you go climbing? No. <laughs> well, um. so, but, but even actually, it was one of the one of my fondest memories of that K six trip is that after we were done with K six, we still had something like ten days left in base camp, and I guess we could have left the mountains, but why leave? Why leave the mountains? Mm-hmm. And the weather was actually good enough; we could have gone for another big objective. But at that point, it was mostly that I just didn't want to carry another heavy pack. Sure. And so for the remaining time, we just were super well acclimatized by, by that point. So we just went and did these day trips on these five and a half thousand meter rock spires, sort of climbing up to five, nine, five, ten mm-hmm. on these granite spires. And every day would start with Russell's breakfast every day with end with Russell's dinner. And during the day, we'd kind of summit these spires where... On one of them, we actually had to take turns on the summit, like belay one another right. the summit because it was point. so sharp. So, cool. so just yeah, just fantastic. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds more <laughs> like my style. <laughs> you'd actually, you'd actually, I would to whoever is listening, I would highly recommend the Charcusa Valley for the perfect alpine holiday. It's the people are unbelievably friendly, and again, you can just have an amazing time playing on again bouldering in base camp and then you go summit these rock spires in these grand and this grand environment with mm-hmm. the backdrop of some 3000 meter faces. No, oh, that sounds unreal. 
I kind of wanted to real quick go all the way back to the beginning. I know from from my my moments of research that you come from a little bit of a climbing background. Your father was was mm-hmm. a climber and, and was bringing you. And did you have brothers and sisters, or mm-hmm. what was your scene? Because and going all the way back to Poland, sure. you actually were, were born and raised. Sure. So I was, I was I was born in Poland. I lived there until I was twelve. In fact, both my parents uh, were climbers. They in fact met. Uh, through the climbing club, and my mother was actually one of the uh, the hottest in many way, more ways than one uh, female climbers in her in her time. Um, she was doing sort of first female ascents of some some hard routes in the Tatras back in the nineteen early uh, or sort of well um, mid to late nineteen uh, fifties, mm-hmm. and then once. My older brother was born in in the early '60s. Uh, I think, as happens to a lot of people, um, climbing, especially back in those days when climbing was a lot more dangerous. I mean, climbing. Um, both my parents started climbing uh, before nylon ropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea, for example, of falling, like to this day, we go out cragging with my dad. My dad just amazed that I'm so casual at falling. Right. Um, he was raised in those uh, things. Are I mean, they're, they're <laughs> like, in your genes and bones. You don't just give them up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't uh, hem. You know, you, you did not take falling on hem probes casually, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but yeah, so both my parents um, were climbers from their early twenties. My dad, my father, was a climbing instructor for quite a while, and so when I was growing up, it was we traveled quite a bit. So we moved from Poland to North Africa to France to uh, Canada, and so there wasn't much opportunity to climb. But in fact. When we emigrated to Canada, basically my parents could have, um, we had been living in um, Algeria, which is a Francophone country largely, and France. So it would have made a lot more sense to, say, emigrate to Montreal uh, in Quebec. But in fact, uh, they chose Calgary because it was closer to the mountains. Oh, right on. And so we moved and your to... your fate was set. And my fate was set. So yeah. we moved to Calgary. And then basically my dad sort of wanted someone to go out with and scramble and um, do glacier crossings and whatnot. And that was the closest thing at hand. So <laughs> so basically, um, I started these adventures with my dad, and it didn't grab me initially. Yeah, I, so that, I was kind of interested because, you know, it sounds like, you know, maybe you, you went along with them or whatever, but your yeah, personal no. climbing didn't start till quite a bit later. Yeah, no, I kind of, I much preferred hanging out with my girlfriend than, yeah. uh, than going well, climbing with my dad. Teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, and yeah, it was uh, it was in fact moving to like I said, like we talked about at the beginning of the show that uh, moving to Chicago and all of a sudden realizing that those um, those mountain adventures that I guess they meant more to me than I realized, sure, right. and that I miss the mountains and I'm going to look for the next best thing, mm. even if the next best thing is this five meter retaining wall um, with broken glass at its base. Right, excellent. Are your folks still around? Um, my dad is, okay. and my dad uh, is 80, and earlier this season, we were, for his first day out of the season, we were out on vertical ice. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. No, he still climbs. Awesome. He He is still fit. Just a few years ago, we tried Denali together, so um, no, he is, he is a lifer, and, and even if he doesn't climb as hard as he used to, and, um, <laughs> and, maybe, slowing, and maybe slowing right. down a bit... 
Being a climber is a huge part of his identity, mm. and he's going to be a climber for the rest of his days. And is that a role model to you in that sense? To you? Is that your that, imagined future? That kind of, um, yes, I think uh, that's, it's kind of, when she sees my dad, my wife, my wife gives up hope. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. This woman is amazing. She's, uh, she's also a little bit mythical from, uh, from your friend's point of view. I know, I, I know. So. Like Col- yeah, uh, a friend, a mutual friend, Colin Powick, uh, doesn't believe she yeah, exists. Exactly, she exists. So, yeah. I have climbing <laughs> friends like that. It's like, you're not me. Um, all right, last question. What about these hairless cats? Beauty's an eye of the, beauty's an eye of the beholder. <laughs> and um, and we're talking about kids earlier, so uh, so I don't have kids, and uh, and partly there was a, um, I mean, um, it's kind of a horrible thing to say, but neither my wife nor I like kids that much. Sorry, that's uh, fine. No, I didn't uh, either. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I guess I guess you always like you like your own, right? Yes. Um, but um, uh, but it was some kind of selfish decision too that like I I, I like my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was afraid kids would cramp it. Um, but I think... Uh, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think my, my, both my wife and I have sort of uh, taken our, um, our maternal, pater- paternal feelings and have sort of transferred them into the cats. Okay. Uh, so our hairless cats are incredibly spoiled. They have, they have heated blankets. And of course, this is Calgary. So, um, a hairless cat is a little out of place in Calgary hairless, in the winter. A hairless cat is out of place pretty much anywhere in the, right. in the wild because uh, they sunburn in the summer. Okay. So we, have to, we put little coats on them in the summer so they don't sunburn. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool, Raph. Thanks for sitting down. I'm I'm so stoked that we made this happen here. We're actually at the URA Ice Festival, and this got set up hours ago to do this interview, and it was fascinating. And um, I, you know, I can't wait for people to hear it. So I it's appreciate you um, down. yeah, and I've um, I've been a fan of your show for a while, so it's a it's an honor and a pleasure to be on it. And uh, and yeah, I'm really glad we made this happen. And um, do come back to the Rockies, and uh, I'd love to have you show me around the ghost oh absolutely yeah i got you know i've got a route up there that never got done i've been trying to sell it to some canadians is so. it in the north coast yeah it's in the north it's coast, kind of beyond the um beyond uh alberta jam there uh on the other side oh it's not on the same side as alberta jam no that's it's the- on the same side as sunset boulevard yeah, yeah so we've said okay it, yeah. we have to go but i'll right. tell you about it in just a <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Raphael Slowinski for sitting down. That turned out to be one of my recent favorites, actually. Kind of was this onion that we were peeling away, trying to get at something important in the middle there, and um, I think we did. I think even Raphael was surprised. Anyhow, remember, folks, if you dig what's going on over here at the EnormaCast, even if you feel occasionally insulted, You can support the podcast by going to enormacast.com, clicking on the Help Out tab, and if you feel like it, you can kick down a little money, since you probably, out of guilt, sold that Sprinter van off and are sitting on a good pile there. So throw a little bit our way. That would be awesome. The Royal We always appreciates it. Okay, everybody, stay safe out there. Remember, no matter how you're clipping in, how you're getting down, whatever you're up to, Don't fuck yourself up. Come home in one piece, because when you come home in many pieces, 
or in a box, it breaks everybody's heart. So don't break any hearts that way. And remember, tragedy stalks relentlessly. So pay attention and check your knot. Everything's gone perfectly to plan except for one small flaw. Due to a technical error by my henchman Mustafa, complications arose in the unfreezing process. My design was perfect. Look what you did to Mr. Bigglesworth! But Dr. Evil, we were unable to anticipate feline complications due to the reanimation process. Silence! 